Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Today, we'll be talking about gestational diabetes with Casey Seiden. Casey, welcome to Healthful Woman. Hello. Thanks for having me. Casey was on before, and you could find her bio on the Healthful Woman website. But just as a, a review for those who have not, Casey works uh, at Maternal Fetal Medicine Associates and at Carnegie Women's Health, and she's a registered dietitian and also a diabetes care and education specialist, formerly known as a certified diabetic educator. They changed the name. And so what we discussed there is that Casey is highly educated. That was me trying to embarrass her. But Casey's educated and then works with our diabetic patients, both with pre-existing diabetes as well as gestational diabetes. Welcome aboard, Casey. You got it. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about gestational diabetes. And gestational diabetes is something that when I see pregnant women with it, most of them walk in a little bit either terrified or certainly very disappointed that they have it. And what I try to explain to women from the outset is two things. First of all, it's not them with the problem. Someone put a placenta inside of them and the placenta causes the gestational diabetes. And so it's not like someone gets gestational diabetes because they ate too many sweets or they ate too many carbs. It really does not work like that. Gestational diabetes is how the body responds to the regular sugars and carbs that we eat because of the placental hormones changing her physiology. So number one, it's not your fault. And that's the important thing. And the second thing I like to focus on is to explain to them that for the vast majority of women, gestational diabetes is much more of a nuisance than a danger. It's a lot of busy work, but generally the outcomes are very good for her and her baby, assuming she just does relatively simple interventions. Have you found the same sort of fear that women have about gestational diabetes? Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of the women that come to see me, they come in with just this overwhelmed look on their face and they'll launch into the 20 things that they read on the internet or their friend or their sister-in-law told them about their experience with gestational diabetes. And I always try to reassure them that was their experience. And there's a lot of information online that may not all be true. So that's why you're here today. So we can clear up some of that confusion and really come up with a plan for you that, like you said, may not need to be as scary or intense and overwhelming as they once thought it was going to be. Right. And in our practice, the way we sort of uh, run our diabetes program for women, and the majority of women in the diabetes program have gestational diabetes, meaning they did not walk into pregnancy with diabetes, whether type 1 or type 2. They, they walked in without it at all, and they developed it during pregnancy because of again, because of the placenta. And that is actually the definition of gestational diabetes sort of physiologically, meaning it's a woman who does not have the disease who then develops it only during pregnancy. And there are some women who have actual pre-gestational diabetes, but the way we want our program is really in a team-based approach. And it involves Casey, who frequently is the point person in terms of dietary advice. When women have to check their finger sticks for their blood glucose, they start through Casey, a lot of questions and answers back and forth, either in person, over the phone, by email, whatever it might be. It also involves one of our maternal fetal medicine specialists. And we're sort of overseeing in terms of her health, as well as how the baby is doing. And we, you know, we'll recommend various ultrasounds to check the baby's weight or the position or the fluid and how the baby's health. 
And then also the obstetrician who's going to be taking care and delivering the women, which could be someone in our practice or it could be someone from an outside practice. Right now, about how many women are in our diabetes program? Right now, we have upwards of like 65, 68 women. And it ranges at any given time, like from 50 to 100, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Most I ever had when I first started was like 105. The, the women who are in it, most of them sort of roll off because they deliver and then they get tested. And we'll talk about that also. And then they don't have it anymore. And so they no longer have to follow with us. But there's always new women getting diagnosed. So there's about that many women. And what percentage would you say are patients in our own practice who we're going to deliver versus patients from an outsider referring practice who come to us just for the diabetes care? That's a good question. Give or take, I would probably say of our own patients, maybe 25, 30%. Mm -hmm. We get a majority, I think, from outside. And I think that's also important for people to realize that sometimes in pregnancy, you can develop either a condition or a complication or a situation or whatever it is. And it requires sometimes an outside team to assist you, but it doesn't require an entire transfer of care or switching everything. For the vast majority of women with gestational diabetes, their OBGYN is perfectly capable of delivering them, taking care of them. Many of them will do the diabetes education and follow it themselves. But for a lot of them, unless they have a very high volume practice, they won't have that many women with it. And so they may not feel as comfortable or they may not have done it a lot since their residency. And so they are happy to refer out for that. And that's a service that we're happy to provide for other women. And that's the majority of women in our program that we follow, as you said. Right. And I think one of the benefits of our program too, is that it's very much done digitally. People come you know, from an outside or MFM practice, they're seeing me once, the MFM specialist once, and then we communicate via email. We know that women in pregnancy have so many other appointments that they're going to. So we try and keep it as non-invasive and minimal contact as needs to be and on the go. Right. There's probably a handful of women who either want to be seen more often face-to-face -face or need to be seen sure. more often face-to-face. -face. But I agree, the majority of women come in, they meet us, they hear what's going on, and they're much happier to communicate via email. And most of the time, there's nothing much to do other than us saying, you're doing great, keep doing what you're doing, or very small tweaks here and there. And to you know insist on women coming to our office and making an appointment and seeing us for that is probably not what's best for them in terms of their time. People work maybe far away from where we are and then to take off a half day of work to come in and have someone say, you're fine, have a good day. It just seems to be unnecessary. So we're happy exactly. to communicate that way. We have a similar relationship with the referring doctors that will electronically send them an update. Uh, you know, let's get facts to their office. Here's, here's what's going on with your patients. Everything's going fine. We made changes. We didn't make changes. And it sort of keeps it on that level. And I think that's resulted in our program is certainly uh, with your interactions for a high level of satisfaction with it. Absolutely. It's communication across the board. Every player knows what's going on with the patient at any given time. Yeah. Right. And that probably also increases compliance, I would imagine. It's easier for people to do all these things if they know that they just have to do it at home and mm -hmm. you know, then they're done with it. I'm an email away, literally. When someone comes and they come to you for the sort of initial consultation, right? What usually happens logistically is someone all women in pregnancy get screened for gestational diabetes, and there's different ways to do it. But I would say, at least in New York City, the way most people are doing it is there's a one-hour screen, which means you come into the office or the laboratory, you have a drink, which is 50 grams of glucose. It's a sugary drink. And then an hour later, you get your blood drawn. And if you pass it, some people use different definitions, but if you pass it, you're done. And if you quote-unquote fail it, it does not mean you have gestational diabetes. It means you have to do a longer more complicated, more annoying test that actually takes a half day where you come in fasting and you first get your blood drawn, then you drink 100 grams of glucose and then have your blood drawn one, two, and three hours later. So it's four blood draws 
over three hours and you have to come in fasting. That's sort of the main test. I tell people if we made everybody do that test, no one would get pregnant anymore because it's just it's just horrific uh, to go intense. through that. Yeah. About one in five women have to take the longer test, give or take. Of those who take it, four out of five are going to quote unquote pass it and then they're done and the one out of five will have gestational diabetes. And then either they see you first or they see someone like me first. And that's usually just based on scheduling. And if they see you first and they walk in the door, how do you approach that visit with her? That she comes in, she just got the diagnosis. She doesn't know anything from anything. She's not doing anything yet. And here she is sitting in front of you. First off with any patient, I always want to kind of assess, all right, what's your baseline knowledge? Like, tell me what you know, if anything. If they don't know anything about gestational diabetes, fine. We start from the ground up and I kind of give them, run them through the basics. People usually come in with a sense of what's going on. They know about carbs. They know about sugar. They have some misconceptions too. Maybe that they need to like completely eliminate carbs or never allowed to touch certain fruits, which isn't necessarily true. So I establish what they know and then ask what questions do you, you know, want to make sure that we get addressed because, you know, I can educate all I want, but if I'm not answering exactly what specific questions they have, we're not, it's not going to be a protective visit for them. So I establish that up front and then we'll kind of walk through what a typical diet day looks like for them. Just what are your meals, snacks, beverages, exercise, sleep? I get a big picture of what that looks like. A lot of people have already come in starting to make a few tweaks. So I'll tend to ask like, well, what was it before? Did you have something different for breakfast before? Because maybe some of those favorite foods that they were having could be brought back in. So it's always nice to let them know that not everything that they maybe had been eating is going to have to be thrown out the window. So we go through that diet assessment and then I kind of walk them through some nutrition 101 basics of what you know, different carb guidelines might be for a meal. Again, yeah, just spelling those myths about carbohydrate portions, fruits, things like that. We'll talk a little bit about the benefits of exercise on their blood sugar, stress management, and sleep, and then come away at least with one or two adjustments they need to make. No one's walking out of there with this perfect diet that they don't have to change anything about. So then we'll kind of identify one or two small things for them to tweak over the next week or so. And then that's where we kind of touch base via email after that. Right. And then at that meeting, is that when you go over finger stick testing, how to yeah. do it and when to do it and whatnot? For those who don't know what happens is gestational diabetes, what do women have to do in order to you know, test themselves? It seems like a really scary thing. And it is more of a nuisance and a little just obtrusive into your daily life than hurtful in any way. Basically, we have women check their blood sugar four times a day. So they'll check it fasting first thing in the morning, right when they wake up so we can get a baseline of just what did their glucose do without food, movement, anything while they're sleeping. And then they'll have to check after every meal. They can choose if they want to do it at a one or a two hour mark. I just say whatever really works for their schedule. There's no good research saying that one of those times is better to check at than the other. Once they kind of know when to do it, we'll go over what the goals are, what they should be looking at for each of those values. And then I will teach them how to do a finger stick. So I have a little practice glucometer in my office and we walk through the steps. So I make sure they're comfortable with the process, setting up the lancing device with the needle, making sure that they know how to put the strip in the meter correctly. What are some issues that could go wrong to look out for? And then we do a practice one and people are so surprised at how little it hurts. I mean, it's the tiniest little poke. They don't even get blood coming out half the time. We got to squeeze the finger. So it really puts them at ease and they feel much more confident taking that kit home and doing it on their own. Right. When I was a little kid and we went to the pediatrician and they would check our blood glucose, they would take, it looked like a thumbtack and they, they would basically stick in our finger. And it was the most like terrifying thing in yeah. the world as a child. But nowadays it basically looks like a, like a pen. Mm-hmm. 
that you put on your finger and there's a button you press and it's automated so that the needle quickly goes in and quickly goes out of your finger. And it's also a much smaller needle. So like you said, either it's very quick or they don't really feel much at all. And since the needle is so small, you frequently have to actually like squeeze the finger to get a drop of blood out. Exactly. And then you put the drop of blood on a little piece of paper and stick it in a machine and it tells you the number. And so that's done four times a day, which like you said, is, is kind of a nuisance, but it's not like getting a blood draw, like going to the lab and having a needle stuck in your arm four times a day. It's nothing like that, Yeah. obviously. And then usually after they start doing that, they'll communicate with you, like you said, electronically. And if the numbers are basically normal, there's nothing to do. Nope. Right? They just can keep eating the way they are and living how they are. Yeah. At some point they're going to run into the maternal fetal medicine specialist. Logistically frequently happens after they see you because it's also nice for us to see a week or two of their results uh, before I talk to them. And then I sort of approach the visit the same way you do. First thing, you know, I ask how they're doing. I right away tell them, you know, if, if you're having any concerns, I promise you're going to walk out of here feeling better then when you walked in, you know, try to put them at ease that this is generally not such a big deal, so to speak. And then I ask them, what is it you know? What is it you want to know? And you get very interesting answers to both of those questions. And then basically the reason to have the meeting with the maternal fetal medicine specialist is I go over sort of the big picture. Like, why do we care? I said, like, what is gestational diabetes and what's the big deal? Like, why are we even doing all this stuff? And some of the key points that I try to focus on is gestational diabetes is not diabetes, right? So diabetes is a disease where someone either does not make insulin anymore. Insulin is what our body uses to take the sugars and carbs that we eat and get them out of our bloodstream and into our tissues, like our liver, or our muscles. So either they don't make them anymore, the insulin, and we usually call it type one diabetes, or they don't respond to insulin anymore. So they make plenty of it, but their body doesn't respond. That's type two. And diabetes as a disease is a big problem because if you have very high sugar for a very long time, the sugar will damage blood vessels from the inside out. And our organs have a lot of blood vessels, so your kidneys could get damaged, your eyes, your heart, your brain, and whatnot. But gestational diabetes is not that. Gestational diabetes, there's nothing wrong with your making insulin or responding to it. It's that since you're pregnant, the placenta makes hormones that in all women change how you respond to insulin. That is a normal change of pregnancy. It increases your blood sugar. And the thought process of why that happens is that if we were like perfect glucose processing machines, our babies would never get any. Because if the second the, the, the sugar hit the bloodstream and went into the liver or the muscle, the baby wouldn't get. So we believe the placenta sort of slows it down and gestational diabetes is just, it's going a little bit overboard. And it has no bearing on the health of the mother because she's not going to have high enough blood sugar and it's not going to be for a long enough period of time to harm her. So this is not a concern of her health, at least in the immediate term. It's really the baby. And the two biggest things we worry about for the baby is number one, the baby's going to be too big, right? Because if you give baby a ton of sugar, you give a baby who's born a lot of sugar, they'll get sort of fat and plump, which is cute. But if you're trying to deliver them vaginally, it gets a little more difficult geometrically. And so babies that are very big have a higher risk, you know, C-section or birth injuries, or the mom will have a larger tear at delivery. And so we want to keep the baby's weight in check. That's sort of goal number one. And it can't always be done, right? Some women with perfectly normal sugars will have big babies, and some women with crazy high sugars have small babies. But it's one factor. And the second thing is, since the baby's not a diabetic, if the baby's used to a ton of sugar, he or she's going to make a lot of insulin. And then after birth, they're going to have low blood sugar because they have all this insulin. And then they end up in the NICU for a couple of days getting weaned off of sugar, which again, isn't typically life-threatening, but people don't want their baby in the NICU. And when I tell them, those are really the two 
risks for gestational diabetes. They're like, really? That's it? And I say, yeah, you know, with very advanced gestational diabetes or women who have real diabetes, there is a small increased risk of stillbirth or other complications, but most women don't really have that. And so what I say is as long as your sugars are basically normal, either on your own or with some dietary modifications, there's nothing to do. You're fine. And that's really it. And if it's a little more advanced and we need to adjust your diet more, start medicine, okay. Doesn't mean you failed. It means your placenta is worse and you need to take medicine and it's better to take medicine and have normal blood sugar than not take medicine and have high blood sugar because the medicines are safe. It's just an issue of how they're done and how they're dosed. And that's really it for pregnancy. And when, when I'm done with that, people are like, oh, okay. Like, that's cool. I could do that. And then the important thing though is after delivery. And we talk about that a lot and I'm sure you do also. And that number one, we have to verify that in fact, this is just gestational diabetes because some women screen positive in pregnancy, but then they find out, wait, I actually have diabetes or I have what we call the pre-diabetes or borderline diabetes, meaning it's an issue that's actually brewing in my life. And I just found out about it because I'm pregnant and they screen me. And that's why we test them about six weeks or eight weeks after delivery. And that's also something that you follow up with patients, correct? To the best of our ability, we know moms with newborns are obviously very busy, very tired, have lots of things, but we do recommend six to eight weeks postpartum having them come back to the lab, do another one of those glucose drinks. This time it's only a 75 gram, two hour test, two blood draws though. There's so much data, at least in the US and how poor compliance is with that test that no matter what population you're talking about, whether it's you know, city or rural, whether highly educated, not highly educated, big families, small families, you know, whatever demographic you look at, people don't come in for that test. And I mean, obviously it's because they're busy and they have a newborn, it's difficult, but it really is important because I see so many women who come back and each pregnancy, they have gestational diabetes and they're never tested in between. And then we find out they actually have diabetes. Right. And that's a really big deal. And that's something that needs to be addressed, obviously, not just when you're pregnant, but when you're not pregnant. And the only way to know that that's either happening or you're at sort of a borderline level is to test when the placenta and the placental hormones are gone. And you can't do it in the hospital after delivery because you still have the same physiology as a pregnant woman for typically six to eight weeks, which is why we do it at that point. And so I think that's a big takeaway for women who do get diagnosed with gestational diabetes and are going through this in pregnancy and have delivered, make sure to get tested after delivery. And if you didn't, let's say you have a one-year-old and you never did it, it's not too late. You can get tested at any point and you mm-hmm. should get tested at some point just to make sure at baseline when you're not pregnant, your levels are normal. You know, when you were talking about what women find as like the complications, like around delivery, the everything, a lot of women, they'll express to me when they find out that their risk of diabetes is higher or their child's risk in their lifetime is higher of getting diabetes after all this gestational diabetes is over with. Those are usually like a lot of light bulb moments for women when I see them like, oh, I don't want that affecting my future or my child's future. So that's when I think that conversation of doing that test after the delivery six to eight weeks later is so crucial is to make sure that you at least establish kind of a baseline. Where are your blood sugars outside of pregnancy? And if they're a little elevated, it just gives you that extra motivation and impetus to keep going with some of those lifestyle changes that you maybe started with the gestational diabetes. Right. And what you touched upon there is is the other reason that gestational diabetes is important, not related to pregnancy, is it's a risk factor for diabetes in your lifetime. 
One of the things we've learned in pregnancy care in the past 10 or so years, a little more so, but in that, in that range is pregnancy is sort of like a window into a woman's health in the future. And we used to think that what happens, you know, like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, what happens in pregnancy stays in pregnancy. It's really not true. So when women who are pregnant get high blood pressure of pregnancy, it's almost think of it like a stress test. Mm-hmm. That if you run on the treadmill and you have changes in your EKG, you're at risk for that happening later in your life. So the same thing, if during pregnancy, your blood pressure goes up, it does not mean you will get high blood pressure in life. It just means you're at a higher risk of developing high blood pressure or heart disease later in life. And the same is true with gestational diabetes. Women who have no risk factors whatsoever, who get gestational diabetes in pregnancy, now have an increased risk in their lifetime of getting diabetes. And that could be 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road. And so for some women, like you said, who maybe aren't exercising or aren't eating healthy foods, or maybe, you know, are a little bit, you know, overweight and would like to lose weight. This is a sometimes like a good impetus for them, an encouragement to sort of continue the things they started in pregnancy. But for women, let's say, you know, a perfectly healthy lives and they're exercising and eating right and having, you know, normal weight and normal blood pressure, everything's fine. There may not be so much to do about it, but I always remind women that this is a part of your medical history. And so when you go to whether it's you go to a getting your appendix removed, or you're going to an you know an internist or a family doctor, and they say, "Do you have any medical problems?" You could say, "I don't." But when I was pregnant three years ago, I had gestational diabetes. I did or didn't need insulin. I had high blood pressure. It lasted for this long after delivery. And an astute clinician will know that therefore you have to be checked more frequently in your life for those conditions occurring. And what happens in pregnancy should be a part of your medical history. And we're learning more and more about that with more research and more time of how much we can see into the future with a woman's pregnancy. Yeah, 100%, which is also why I try to, you know, really emphasize, you know, women will ask me after I deliver, can I just go back to eating the way I was eating? Can I have my, my bagels every morning? And it's like, well, you could, but you know, now you are at a higher risk for getting diabetes in your lifetime. So I kind of see what we just were practicing throughout your pregnancy to manage your blood sugars as a trial run to really starting and implementing some healthy eating habits that I believe anyone should carry forward into their adult life. So sure, you can absolutely go back to eating a bagel and not have to worry about what the blood sugar result is going to be. But think about those choices more in, you know, the context of your health long term. And now that you have this risk factor, right, the difference between having a bagel every day for breakfast versus having a bagel. And right, clearly the first is maybe not the greatest choice in the world. And the second is perfectly fine if someone doesn't have diabetes. What what I found so interesting about gestational diabetes, and this is sometimes where people looking online at diabetic diets and whatnot is really not as good as actually talking about it is it's so much more unpredictable, right? If you take someone who has like type one diabetes, they can do glycemic index and carb counting, and they can predict precisely what's going to happen to their blood sugar based on what they eat, how much they eat it, and then dose their insulin in advance of them eating it. But with gestational diabetes, it's so unpredictable. I have some women who, you know, they're like, every time I eat mango, my sugar shoots up. And other women, like I could eat as much mango as I want, but if I have a strawberry, my sugar flies off the charts. And it just goes to show that it's it's not the same quote unquote disease for every person. It's really how right. they're responding to different levels of hormones coming out of the placenta. And a lot of it is trial and error. You can't tell someone on day one, if you eat these foods, your sugars will be fine. 
sometimes they could eat anything and their sugars are mostly okay. And sometimes there's certain foods that are just culprits for them. And it's really hard to grasp that. And it's a lot of trial and error. Yeah, I can give people kind of a general guideline, but I always say we won't know until you test. People with type 1 diabetes are living with this their entire life. So they can really fine tune and get to understand their body and how it responds to so many foods. Women in pregnancy have a few weeks, months at best. And so, you know, I say, well, let's take the first two weeks to kind of like Trial some of your favorite foods, trial a quote unquote really healthy meal, see how they all go, and then just see what you can kind of get away with in a sense. Not that you, if you could get away with a sleeve of Oreos, I would encourage getting away with a <laughs> sleeve of Oreos, but your blood sugar just might handle it differently than your friends would. Right. I, I tell women that by the time they really figure it out, they'll deliver. And what are the some of this very like simple, basic recommendations they make to women just like from day one to get diagnosed? I'm tired them on the phone. Like, what could I do? What could I do? And, you know, I just say, all right, the typical American diet is about two thirds carbs and one third other fats and proteins. I say, if you could flip that, you know, just on day one, like increase your proteins and fats and decrease your carbs, that would be great. Not eliminate your carbs, but just decrease a little bit. And number two, of the carbs you eat, if you can shift to things like brown rice, whole wheat that are sort of processed a little bit slower and don't spike your blood sugar, like those two things can sometimes be enough for someone with gestational diabetes and that's it. Yep. Just a simple, a simple change in the diet that's not too life altering, not too drastic. A lot of people would like to do it anyways. They feel healthier when they do it. And sometimes that's all people need. Yeah. I always say to zoom out, you know, my nutrition advice is never super sciencey or super alluring, but it really comes down to eating more vegetables, choosing quality proteins and healthy fats and keeping your carb intake, you know, as a smaller piece of the diet and trying to choose those good complex carbs. Do you have any other like pearls or tips that you give women like routinely on the first visit? You've mentioned it and it comes up all the time, you know, fruit, people come in with so many misconceptions about fruit. They put it in a separate category for some reason than like rice and pasta and things. So, you know, everyone thinks that they can never have fruit when they get this diagnosis, but that is absolutely not true. A big pearl that I like to share is when we're going to have something that, you know, like a fruit, maybe a higher glycemic food, pair it with some protein, you know, have that banana or apple with a little bit of peanut butter. It goes a long way if you have kind of a buddy riding along with that carbohydrate food. So giving them that idea of like, oh yeah, protein and fats really can help modify the blood sugar response. If they keep that principle in mind, they can do pretty good with snacks and meals. Right. Because you could have the same actual amount of sugar consumed, but if it gets released slower into your bloodstream, you're not going to have these spikes in blood sugar. And so another thing that comes up and probably, you know, 25% of women with gestational diabetes or less, right? Not, Not the majority is that they do all the right things but their blood sugars are still high, particularly the ones when they're fasting, because there's that has nothing to do really with what they're eating. That's just sort of what their baseline is. And I find that the majority of women feel like they're a failure, like they did something wrong and they, they're like embarrassed by it. So they're, they'll start eating less and less and less because they want their sugars to be normal. And I try to encourage them that it's exactly the opposite. Like they're doing everything they can. Like this is happening to them. They didn't do this. And I, I usually see that when someone has you know, really low or normal blood sugars after they eat, but high blood sugars when they're fasting, which tells me they're like really tight on their diet and are, you know, doing everything perfectly right. But ultimately their body just has high blood sugar and there's not much they can do about that other than take medicine. And I tell you, it is 
they're so relieved when they finally come around to it and we start them on some medication or insulin. Those first few days where they haven't woken up in a panic and stress after checking their blood sugar and they see a normal fasting value that's at, that's at goal, they're so relieved. And they're like, you know what? This is totally worth it. Like I would have signed up to do the insulin a week ago. It takes the stress off and, and helps them feel like, you're right, this is not my fault. And it also helps them throughout the day because if you are doing everything you can with your diet to, to keep your blood sugars during the day normal, it, it's going to be harder if you start out your day with a high blood sugar. Exactly. Because <laughs> you're starting at a higher baseline. If you're If you start with a slightly lower, more normal blood sugar, then you probably can't eat more. And sometimes women, they actually, it goes overboard and they eat too little during the day. And then they end up having the opposite problem that their babies aren't growing enough and they're not getting the nutrients that they need, the, the women, as well as their babies in order to have a healthy pregnancy. And so sometimes, and this is not just, you know, like the fault of the woman, sometimes, you know, as doctors, we focus so much on the finger sticks and they have to, you know, do this and do this and do this, that sometimes it's overboard and it, it actually becomes harmful and they're better off just taking a medicine to keep their blood sugars normal while they eat a healthy diet. Yeah. People will try and ask me like, well, how low can I push it? What's the lowest I can go? And I'm like, well, we don't want you getting hypoglycemic, but we also want to make sure that you and the baby are getting all the nutrition that you need. So my goal is always to help people liberalize their diets if we can. Right. It's, it's unusual for anybody pregnant or otherwise to get low blood sugar from not eating. Mm -hmm. They generally will only get it if they're on medicine right. and they're not eating. So it's, you know, even if someone baths and you check their blood sugar, it's usually in a normal range because the body has mechanisms to keep us from getting low blood sugar. Otherwise, every time we fasted, we would all pass out immediately. Sometimes people are just, they'll say, all right, if I, you know, if I eat half of my lunch, my sugar will be normal. Like, well, that's not good. I, I say, you know, eat a healthy diet. If you're, if you are eating, you know, jelly donuts for lunch, all right, cut them out. But if you're eating regular, good, healthy diets at normal amounts, you shouldn't be hungry all day and your sugars are high. That's not your fault. That's your placenta's fault. Exactly. Placenta. And what are the treatments that are available to women after diet and exercise aren't doing the trick? What are typically people recommended to take? For the fasting blood sugars, we have a few treatments. Our first line, we usually go towards taking a small dose of insulin at nighttime. So it would be um, an intermediate acting insulin that works for about 10 to 12 hours. So if they take it right before they go to bed, it's usually peaking and having its most effective action right when their blood sugars are rising in the morning. The placenta is making all those antagonizing hormones, cortisol is going up. So it just kind of blunts that rise and keeps everything really controlled. So and insulin these days is in a form that is a lot less scary than it used to be with the vial and syringe. That's still out there. But now most insulin comes in a handy pen device that has a little tiny needle that you just put on the top. You inject it into kind of your belly fat that you have on your upper buttocks or your love handles. You hardly feel it. It's like the finger stick. Right, it's, it's probably smaller. That, that needle is tiny. And we have so much more fat where we're doing it for the <laughs> insulin. So people prefer that than the finger sticks, to be honest. So we help them to determine an insulin dose based off their body weight and then monitor the blood sugars for a few days and we'll adjust the dose as we see fit. Insulin's been used for diabetes and pregnancy for 50 years. The safety profile for it is outstanding. Yes. The, the number one question I get asked is, is the needle going to get stuck into the baby? And then I say, look at the needle first. And then let me know the needle, the needle's like, like three millimeters long. It's tiny. Yep. If you can, if your baby's that close to your skin, 
there's other issues probably other problems, <laughs> yeah. so, so i say no the needle's not going to go with your baby and it's exceedingly safe and also as long as you don't overdose and you really can't overdose with these pens because you sort of click the number of units you're supposed to take it's perfectly safe and we generally we're going to start on a you know based on how much you weigh and you know what are your finger sticks and go from there and then work our way up until we get to the right amount. If let's say someone really doesn't tolerate insulin or they don't want insulin, there are options for pills for medications to take as well. There is efficacy to them. What do you find is the upside and the downside to taking the pills instead of the insulin? So it depends on what issue we're trying to treat, right? So if it's still the fasting blood sugars that we're trying to treat, one of the oral medications called metformin could be an option. Metformin is basically helping to increase your insulin sensitivity. So on the tissue level, it's kind of opening up more of those doors of your cells to let the sugar go in while you're sleeping, perhaps. It's effective and it is, you know, safe and studied in pregnancy. But I see a few side effects with metformin. It has a lot of gastrointestinal upset. People will get diarrhea, a lot of kind of gas and bloating with it. So people aren't the most you know, aren't the biggest fan of it for that reason. And if you take it in pregnancy, you're not on it for a super long amount of time. But one thing we do know about metformin is it can cause some nutrient depletion. So vitamin B12 and folate, which we know are super crucial in pregnancy. It's an effective pill for the fasting. So it could be an option if someone's really opposed to insulin. Right. Metformin is used in non-pregnant women or men also sometimes as a weight loss medication because yeah. it does help their insulin. And also sometimes they're, they're get gastrointestinal side effects and they don't need as much. It's sometimes used in pregnancy for women with polycystic ovary yes. syndrome, particularly early in pregnancy. There's a good safety profile for it in pregnancy, meaning as far as we know, there's no increased risk of birth defects or anything like that. It seems to be well tolerated. One of the interesting things in, in the studies on metformin is that the women who started it, somewhere between 30 and 50% ended up on insulin afterwards yeah. because there's a, there's a high quote unquote failure rate because either it didn't work to do what needed to be done or the women didn't tolerate uh, mm -hmm. the side effects. Whereas with insulin, there don't tend to be any side effects. Yeah. The, the reason people don't do it is because they're just sort of like afraid of needles or something yeah. of that sort. They just, they just think, oh, a pill is going to be easier than the needle. But the, the other nice thing about insulin is so much easier to fine tune. You can adjust it by slight amounts, whereas metformin, it's usually you can take one pill or two pills or three pills. It's hard to adjust it, to titrate it, so to speak, as easily. Yeah, definitely. And then there's the flip side if people have trouble managing their blood sugars post-meals. So there's a different kind of insulin people can use for that that's more short-acting, and you would only take it a few minutes prior to eating. It's only in your system for two hours. It's another injection, but again, very effective, and we can fine-tune it based on kind of the carb quantity of a meal. For people that don't want to do that, there is another oral medication option called gliburide. And this class of medication basically is trying to tell your pancreas that when you're eating, it needs to make more insulin for you so that it could lower your blood sugar when you're eating. Again, it's been studied in pregnancy as safe. It's kind of like the third line option, perhaps. And the one downside of a medication like gliburide would be that it can cause hypoglycemia. Right, low blood sugar, particularly in the morning. Mm -hmm. So you have to be really careful about when you use it. I've seen patients come in and they had been prescribed it to take before bed to control their fastings. It doesn't work for that long, A, and you're not eating. And so there's the risk that their blood sugar was dropping too low while they were sleeping and they'll wake up in a cold sweat and feel really sweaty and shaky and not good at all. So you have to be careful with that one. How many women do you see who are on 
uh, something like a, an insulin pump or something like that? I actually don't have any patients here at MFM who are on an insulin pump. That's not used for gestational diabetes. Because right. really people wouldn't need, if someone needed an insulin pump for gestational diabetes, I think they have diabetes. But it is used for diabetics, usually type 1 diabetics, because those are the ones, again, who don't make any insulin. So they basically need insulin all day. They, right? Yeah, they would be injecting themselves. Right. So for the, for the gestational diabetics and also the type 2 diabetics, they would really only take insulin or medication if their blood sugars are high or if they sort of eat and they know something's going to happen. For, for type 1s, they need to take insulin all day because they're not making it. So they typically go on a pump. And did you work with people with, with an insulin pumps in a prior? You must have done it during your training, obviously. I did a little bit. Yeah, I used to work in an outpatient setting. And so I would see type 1 and type 2 diabetics. And I had a few people on insulin pumps and they managed them pretty well. They were also usually used in tandem with now they have these continuous glucose monitors. So instead of people having to do the finger sticks, which is especially cumbersome for someone maybe with type 1 diabetes or someone with type 2 diabetes who's doing a lot of insulin all day long, it took the burden off the finger stick. So it was this whole, you know, technological advancement that they had in their treatment. They could just very easily check their blood sugars via this monitor. Yeah, they just and, put their phone near their arm and then suddenly yeah. tells them what their blood sugar is. My pregnant patients will ask me, well, can I do that one? I, I saw the commercials. Can I can I use that instead of checking my finger sticks? And unfortunately, the data is just not there yet. It's not really approved to use in pregnancy. It's not going to get the most accurate readings because we know in pregnancy, women's blood volume is expanded so much. And that's really how those meters are measuring blood sugar. The accuracy is not certain whether people are going to be willing. It's, it's probably more expensive. And since it's a short period of time, it's, yeah, who knows? The the, the jury's out, as we say. On whether uh, yeah, it's gonna I would be hope used. it gets used yeah. in the future. It'd be great. It'd make it easier for people. And I think compliance is, mm-hmm. is generally the main thing. Because again, it's it's a it's a nuisance for, you know, people who are busy or have other kids at home or busy at work or whatever it is. It could be annoying to do these things. Totally. Casey, this was great. I'm, uh, I'm really happy you came on. We spoke about gestational diabetes. Obviously, if you have any questions about gestational diabetes and you want to run through the podcast or other topics related to it, you can definitely email us or make an appointment to see us in the office or to see um, Casey or to see myself or any one of us. Again, just to summarize, gestational diabetes is something that happens. It's not the fault of the person who gets it. It's a response to the hormones of pregnancy. And for the vast majority of people, it's at most a nuisance. It's not going to be dangerous to her or the baby. And it's just something to remember that in your lifetime, you have an increased risk of getting diabetes. So your doctor should know. And if there are things you have to change in your life in terms of lifestyle or dietary, that sometimes it's a good incentive to do so after being pregnant. Exactly. Couldn't agree more. Thanks for coming on. We look forward to seeing you on a future podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.